What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science, covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez-Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. And I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Thank you for joining us today. In today's episode, we're joined by a panel of panelists from the ongoing IAPHS annual meeting. I'm your host, Daryl Hudson at the Washington University in St. Louis. I'm joined by Adia Gohir, who's from Johns Hopkins University. Adia, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So the title of this panel sounds particularly interesting, Critiques of Western Paternalism on Global Health Outcomes. So if you would, could you please tell us a little bit more about what we'll be talking about today? Absolutely. So at its core, the field of global health strives to create more equitable relationships between people and places around the world. However, the contemporary global discourse um, lacks critical consideration of the historical background of the political context and the disproportionate power dynamics of the current Western dominated system. And so through this discussion, we hope to highlight the many ways the global North dominates the global health agenda and discuss ways to correct some of these pervasive power imbalances. We hope that by critically engaging with the shortcomings of our current global health system, we can demonstrate how we can work across disciplines towards a more equitable global health practice. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Um, so why don't you introduce us to today's panelists? Sure, my pleasure. So um, we've got a multidisciplinary team with us here today, really um, showing sharing a lot of different backgrounds and perspectives. So we have Anz Erfan, who is a PhD student in environmental and occupational health at George Washington University. As a recent immigrant to the U.S. and having lived in three different sociocultural geographies, Anz brings a unique perspective to health policy. Trained as a physician, he left clinical medicine after being smitten by public health and health policy, and he aims to leverage his knowledge and experiences to steer the field of public health toward translation of evidence. We also have Ezene Wonklo, a PhD student in community health sciences at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her experiences as an immigrant from Nigeria have helped to shape her interest in migration and immigrant health. Her research interests center on the migration and immigrant experiences of black and African populations. She believes her um, research will shed light on the challenges that immigrants face to integrating into U.S. society and the impact that these barriers have on health and well-being. She expects that this research will help to identify opportunities for effective immigrant integration policies and programs. Denise St. Jean is a PhD student in epidemiology at the UNC Gillings School of Public Health. She is a first-generation American and a dual citizen of the small Caribbean island of Dominica. Prior to pursuing her doctorate, Denise earned a BS in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology from Yale University. 
She hopes to combine her academic training with her experiences from the private sector to bring a unique and interdisciplinary perspective to challenges in global infectious disease prevention and treatment. Specifically, she's interested in the effectiveness of interventions for tropical infectious diseases in low and middle income countries. Ultimately, she hopes that her research will inform better decision making and health policies for infectious disease management in resource limited settings. And finally, our fourth panelist is Chioma Woko, a PhD student in health communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Chioma's public health research experience in both industry and academia has given her a global perspective of the multi-sectoral issues influencing health equity and the health outcomes of marginalized groups. She is currently studying how online social networks and subsequent exposure to health-related information and misinformation influence health behaviors. She hopes to use her knowledge and expertise to develop scalable and sustainable health behavior interventions and ultimately impact health policies affecting underserved populations. And all four of our panelists today are part of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Research Scholars Program. Welcome again, and I'm a mentor for the HPRS program and I'm really happy to have you all here. So. Really interested in hearing about you all's work, so I'll, I'll turn things back over to Adia to, to allow us to hear from each panelist and, and what you have in store for today. Excellent, thank you. Um, so we were hoping to start, I just wanted to discuss a little bit the title of this podcast. So could you please explain what you mean by Western paternalism? I'll take this first question. First, I'll offer a definition of paternalism which to me includes two basic elements, power over another and the justification for that power. So paternalism limits a person or group's liberty or autonomy and is often motivated by a claim or justification that that group or person will be better off. So when we talk about Western paternalism, we are referring to the notions practices and justifications that are maintained by countries that once had colonial power um, in how they view and treat certain countries, including those that they colonized, viewing them as backward or in need of guidance and saving, and by extension, civilization. So justifications are often used for improving the country's welfare and well-being um, in the form of global health initiatives and other kinds of humanitarian aid. Um, yeah, I would like to add to that. Sorry, I would like to add to that. Um, when I think of Western paternalism and its consequences for global health, I think of the way colonial and white supremacist forces profit off of giving aid to Africa rather than investing in building sustainable systems. Uh, historically, the goal for uh, Europeans' goal for Africa as a colonial project was to create a commercial enterprise that they never stop profiting from. And that affects how uh, we, what public health and global health looks like today. Um, uh, of course, it's easy to see, to view organizations doing health promotional work as doing uh, uh, the right thing and trying to um, improve on health outcomes. But what's actually happening is that we're benefiting from, from these nations being in a constant state of need rather than uh, self-sufficiency. Absolutely. Thank you for that background. I'll pause here to see if anybody else wants to jump in. 
So, um, Chioma, just building off of what you were saying, could you just speak more to the role of Western paternalism in current global health structures? Sure. Uh, as Western nations are the ones providing this aid work, uh, it, it's obvious that they end up being the ones setting the agenda. Like, what are the research priorities? Uh, what are the intervention strategies? And, and how are different health uh, resources being allocated? So ultimately, the infrastructure of global health work leaves countries and their citizens at the mercy at, uh, of Western power. So they're the ones, although people might claim that there's collaboration and input from stakeholders, but ultimately, uh, these countries that have the, the, the power, the financial resources to do this work are the ones that, are, that end up setting the agenda and delivering the healthcare interventions um, the way that they choose to. Um, and I think that it is important that as, as participants of the system, it's, it's unfair to say that we're not, it's unrealistic to say that we're not benefiting. We rather, I, I see our, those of us in this uh, health and equity space that are also like, uh, look at our work in a, from a critical lens. I, I sort of see our role as doing, uh, some sort of harm reduction. Um, our presence in these spaces is, is important because without, uh, people like us who are thinking about uh, the way the historical context and and just the presence of of Western nations in in these in these countries doing um, aid work, uh, if people aren't thinking about that, they're going to continue to uh, perpetuate and, and enact more harm than good, um, despite the the intention. Thank you. And so next, could you describe for me um, what is meant by the term decolonization? of global health? Um, I I can take a stab at that. Um, it's, so to me, decolonization, basically what sort of, um, I want to say what Esna and Choma already said it in a very neat way. Um, it's basically moving away from this Eurocentric approach to science, you know, it's uh, because historically, um, you know, we need to go back to the way we teach science at our school level, in our colleges and schools of public health and so on. It has historically been a very revisionist version of science, which has always centered predominantly white men at the center of the scientific universe. And so when we say decolonization, it really is moving away from that approach. And I just wanna highlight that point to, uh, it's very important because they get to really strong and raging debate these days because people have finally discovered that maybe we don't live in a post-colonial society uh, or, or a post-racial society. Uh, so I just want to uh, highlight that the term decolonization or the movement of decolonization is not revisionist, you know, it's actually going back to the factual reality of going back to the facts, you know, and all we are really saying when we say decolonization is that approaching science by acknowledging the historical injustices which were committed by colonial Western powers, which continue to reflect on our scientific enterprise to this day, and also more importantly, recognizing the achievements and contributions of non-white folks around the globe uh, from black and brown people around the world who have contributed tremendously to this enterprise, but we are never uplifting their voices 
or we're never taught that historically they have had these contributions to the science, you know? Um, so that's sort of like, you know, when I approach decolonization, that's what I, that's how I perceive it. So moving away from this uh, very Eurocentric Western approach towards knowledge, towards a more uh, comprehensive approach that takes into uh, account multiple different perspectives towards, uh, you know, any number of solutions to global health. Um, I also want to quickly acknowledge that there is a there's a very healthy debate, uh, intellectual debate on the term of decolonization itself. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the folks in a different uh, uh, sphere make consider what I'm talking about as anti-colonial and not so much as decolonization. Uh, Dr. Eve Tuck's work on that is something folks who are interested in should look into because, you know, they argue that decolonization means literally decolonizing the land uh, and everything else in between. And there's a whole debate on settler colonialism as well. So I, at the very least, I want to acknowledge that part. I know that they may, that may be outside of the scope of this podcast, uh, but I just do want uplift those voices and acknowledge that part. Um, I would like to follow up on what Anz just said, and, and thank you for also bringing up that kind of discussion about the term um, decolonization and how it can mean different things to different people. I think it's really important that we talk about that here. Um, but I think that historically, um, as well as presently, um, the field of global health is very top down. You know, things really go from north to south. And, and as you mentioned, it's led primarily by um, white men from a from a small handful of countries, um, and so um, decolonization, in the way that I see it, is a movement to mitigate, if not eliminate, um, the disproportionate influence that um, white researchers and thought leaders have in places that are not theirs. And, and I think that it really demands intentional efforts um, on the part of, of researchers and, and scholars um, who, who practice global health to ensure that um, people and communities who are at the center of the goals of public health, but have historically been excluded from agenda setting, as Chioma mentioned, and, and decision making, finally have a seat at the table and that their seat is valued as much as, if not more, than everyone else's, because those are really the voices that matter. And so I think it's really about this, this shift in the power dynamics of health policy and decision-making is, is kind of how I see um, decolonization. Thank you both. That was um, an excellent, an excellent um, explanation and primer for us. So then moving on, Hans, could I have you talk a little bit more about how global health policy perpetuates colonial era power dynamics? Um, sure, I can briefly comment on it because I feel Denise just talked about it. Like, you know, that's that was uh, all I can say is what she said. Um, but it really is, you know, like I just want to sort of like reiterate and again, like uplift that top down approach. And this is not something that we're not talking about the stuff existing in vacuum. It's like institutions, very powerful institutions from World Health Organization to the World Bank to these major foundations like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and so on. Almost all of those, and then when we move on to the United States government, our own government, our uh, programs like PEPFAR, you know, uh, these initiatives are very top-down, extremely top-down, I would argue. And basically what we're really saying is that asking these countries that you change your entire social-cultural structures 
if you want to access this funding, right? So that's something, you know, like it's coming from that maintaining that. So I want to sort of like, you know, say that over and over and over again, power dynamics, power dynamics, power dynamics, because we have historically, you know, we went out, we looted these countries, we got enriched by looting those countries. And historically, that's how, that's why we are richer uh, in the Western world, those of us living here, you know, and the global South, they were the ones who historically got the brunt of that colonial uh, project. And now that continues to, so now we've approached the same thing in a much more sophisticated way, but we're really saying that selling it domestically as this global charity work, uh, and still we continue to approach it with that donor recipient uh, model of um, aid that we extend to these countries out there in the world. And then on top of that, within academia, those people who, who are responsive to some of these critiques of how we approach uh, Global South and Global North relations. You know, terms like partnerships, for instance, you know, like community engagement, I, I want to argue a lot of that stuff is appropriated. You know, like it's like we're using those terms just to get around uh, that donor-recipient model. And it's mostly rhetorical. It's not in a meaningful, meaningful way that we actually do that. And I think when we look at the outcomes, going back to what Denise was saying, who makes the decisions? So thinking about that, professors, researchers, practitioners, majority of them are white men or women, you know, and these folks cannot relate to a lot of the issues from Global South. And then, you know, I'm sitting a lot of the times in this global health intervention related proposals or projects or research. And these folks have visited a country twice uh, in their entire lives. And in Western world, we call them global health thought leaders. And that in itself is a joke, but no one is laughing there. So clearly we lack humility to acknowledge that part that no, uh, you gotta learn and unlearn a lot before you approach any of these issues. And if you want meaningful partnership that would reflect who is the first author in your publications, who is making the decisions in terms of your funding decisions, instead of going out and telling people that we have this pot of money for this one specific issue, and other than that, we don't care. You know, in COVID response, for instance, then this was a critique in Ebola response too, that, oh, global health all of a sudden Western world was so generous in thinking about like, how do we approach and fix that issue? And the reality there really is that, you know, 25,000 people die of hunger each day. And that's like every day, 25,000 people, closer to nine, 10 million uh, people uh, every year. And, you know, global health is not thinking about those issues because they're just not sexy enough for them, you know, or more importantly, going back to the history of global health, it really was tropical medicine, right? Like, you know, for white men to protect themselves from the diseases of brown and black people that they were treating as savages, according to them. And then we moved away from it to international health. And then we moved away from uh, that to global health, right? So thinking about that, like diseases like COVID or Ebola, the way we are really interested in them really is that Centuries ago, it was the same thing. Now it is the same thing, that it is going to impact Western world. And all of a sudden, we're coughing up money and resources and thinking about how do we deal with it when actual local issues may be vastly different from what we may perceive them to be. Thank you, Anne, for that very thoughtful response. Denise, I was hoping next up you could explain the term local global health. Um, yes, um, of course. So I think that global health, the way it's 
commonly taught is often really framed as public health somewhere else or just or just outside of one's own country. While I think that local global health really de-emphasizes geographic location and, and really focuses more on geographic context. And so some of our most you know, pressing global health challenges right now, you know, according to the World Health Organization, um, are the climate change crisis, antibiotic resistance, um, healthcare accessibility, healthy food accessibility, and you know, the list goes on. Um, but the list also goes on to give us some statistics. You know, it tells us that we have 7 million people that die annually from air pollution and that one third of the world's population doesn't have access to quality medicines or vaccines. But nowhere on the list does the WHO specify where these people are located. Um, so while we all obviously know that there are certain countries that are disproportionately burdened by certain problems on that list, if you are working towards solving any of those problems among a community of people who are suffering from them, regardless of your location, you are absolutely engaged in global health work. And I think that that's not how you know, we were kind of taught to think about global health, not thinking about the, the local communities that we're in. And, and you may have heard the term or the phrase global is local and local is global. Um, I personally heard it for the first time when I started at UNC in the School of Public Health. Um, but um, that's a phrase that we use um, because the reality is that all public health crises are local to some community while also being inherently global. Um, so a local environmental issue, for example, like the wildfires in, in California, that, that same problem is almost certainly being replicated in other parts of the world. While, while it's also contributing to our global climate change crisis as we speak. Um, and, there, and there's no reason that a program, right, that exists to improve postnatal outcome in, in Uganda cannot also inform a program in Mississippi where one in seven births are premature in the state of Mississippi. So we are seeing a lot of these problems are happening in the same place. Um, in different places, but they're the same problem, sorry. So, so like I said, local global health, I think thinks of people, not to sound like as a cliche, but as global citizens and, and really emphasizes context, I think more than anything else. Absolutely, thank you. So continuing, do you think that you could share some examples where failing to take local context into account led to poor health outcomes? Um, yeah, um, there are two examples that I that come to mind. Um, the first is um, a bit older. People may remember um, the, the three by five initiative that was an initi initiative by the WHO. It was a goal of treating three million HIV infected people by the end of 2005. So this is a bit older of an init initiative. And ultimately that initiative, um, it was considered, it was not considered a success. Um, they did not even reach halfway to their goal. Um, but the initiative was largely criticized for two main reasons. One was, again, to that phrase that Ans kept saying, it was very top down. So instead of allowing the target countries to really take control and ownership of their own HIV programs, that didn't happen. Um, the WHO tried to kind of run the programs without actually talking to programs on the ground. And then two was WHO's decision to focus on drug prices as a treatment barrier. That that's not unreasonable, right? But it turned out that the real barrier was, was related to lack of infrastructure needed to provide access to the treatments. It wasn't about the cost um, because a lot of those drugs are actually donated or largely subsidized by large countries. So that wasn't the main issue. The reason this ended up being harmful be is because to lower costs, the WHO decided to use generic drugs um, rather than kind of true and trusted drugs. Um, and, and these drugs had unknown safety and efficacy at the time. And, and by 2005, many of those drugs had to be halted and taken out of the program 
because it was shown that there was a lack of bioequivalence to proven drugs. So we had this large number of people that were given substandard medications. And also this led to this massive distrust that it took time to repair. And, 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 and this is just an example of when this, the, the cost of the drug trying to cut costs was not the issue at all. And, and this is something that, that um, the WHO might have known had they done some groundwork and gone into some of these countries and said, okay, well, you have a program. Why is this program not working? And those conversations really didn't happen. Um, another broader example um, is, is some challenges, uh, I think, that, that have been experienced in trying to globalize mental health care interventions. And so, you know, a lot of uh, psychotropic drugs are an intervention that are fairly easy to globalize. Um, it's, it's pretty much um, known that a lot of those drugs are manufactured in Western countries and similar to pharmaceuticals for infectious diseases, we can easily transport those to different settings. And kind of the big, the catch-all problem people see in global health is that, oh, these countries don't have access to the drugs that we have here. But, but the reality is that in um, lower middle-income countries, social challenges like poverty, unemployment, you know, war, conflict, these are sort of the really important determinants of mental health outcomes. And so evidence-based practices and strategies that are developed in Western countries really may not be culturally appropriate or effective in these settings when they're dealing with a world of other social issues that are leading to mental health um, problems. And so pres prescribing medications is, is a lot easier, right, right, than conducting a more complex, you know, developing a more complex psychosocial intervention. And there have been a number of ethnographic studies and case reports, case reports highlighting countries in South Asia, such as India and Nepal, um, that have found that increasing access to psychotropic medications has actually silenced community voices and really is reinforcing existing barriers to care, which is obviously not the intent. But this is what happens sometimes when you try and throw a panacea or, or a catch-all intervention and standardize it across the world. And I think that mental health care is another example where that, that really can be detrimental to people's um, well-being. Mm -hmm. And... And if I could um, very briefly sort of comment on uh, building off of what Denise said, I think like this this is a great example of thinking about what we do consider evidence, right? Um, you know, when we say like, so for instance, Denise just used the term evidence-based and we're constantly told to think about critically, uh, quote unquote, that evidence-based strategies, you know, but that evidence is from a very Eurocentric perspective, that evidence is what whatever people in the Western world or, uh, you know, in the North think the evidence is, right? And that's something, um, she was giving an example of mental health, public health, mental health interventions, but generally, you know, like, uh, being trained as a physician from that perspective, psychiatry is an example of it, that a lot of those that synthesis of the evidence that then defines what the diagnostic criteria is going to be, those studies were conducted in the West, you know, like they're not sensitive to the social cultural aspects of anywhere else in the world for the most part, you know, and now we're going around labeling people in a particular way. And that begs the question, what that evidence means, you know, nobody's saying that we should be dismantling science, we're just arguing that we should be more critical about that thing, instead of taking this thing as a theocratic approach. And the other example that comes to mind, you know, like I grew up in Pakistan, um, and uh, one of my very first public health related work was an immunization campaign against polio. And all these years later, decades later, that issue is still there. And part of that is the mistrust 
of the communities towards the global health regime, such as World Health Organization, because their approach really is that I give it to you, you take it. Going back to what Denise was saying, without taking communities' perspectives into account, you know, like I teach a class and I ask students a question often, what's the relationship between Osama bin Laden and polio. Um, now, on the surface, it may sound like an odd question, when the reality there really is that the person who we used to root out where Osama bin Laden was hiding in Pakistan was a physician who was running polio campaign. And then the U.S. government disclosed his identity to the public. And after that, there have been numerous instances where communities are literally shooting people who are trying to immunize them because there is that the level of mistrust is so high now because they don't trust who is conducting these trials or who is conducting these interventions and trying to immunize them. So going back to all that being said, we should be really critically thinking about what do we actually mean by evidence and whether or not we're taking community perspectives and social cultural aspects into account when we approach any number of these issues ranging from global mental health to immunization, which is going to be another issue coming up if and when we have the COVID vaccine. And then on top of that, to uh, sanitation and so on, something Denise and I uh, had worked on very briefly in the past. Thank you both for those perspectives. Um, Antone, you have um, some unique perspectives from the qualitative interviews that you conducted with healthcare professionals who deployed to West Africa during the 2014 to 2016 Ebola epidemic. Could you share some of your um, insights? I'm gonna to try to provide some real life context um, for our conversation today. I was involved in a study that was designed to improve our understanding of the impact of um, healthcare deployment to high risk infectious disease outbreaks. We interviewed physicians and nurses who had recently returned from um, their voluntary deport, uh, deployment to the 2014 um, to 2015 West Africa Ebola outbreak. People volunteered for a variety of reasons. They volunteered because they believed um, they had the skills. They volunteered because they thought it was ethical. It was their ethical obligation to do so. Some had a commitment to social justice and health equity. Some had past experiences of volunteering during other humanitarian crises. Yet the one thing that was universal is that the training that they received was suboptimal. Um, and many participants knew that they had limited knowledge and understanding about the context that they were um, entering. So participants talked about the experiences before, during, and after their deployment, and just noted a lack of organization of the medical mission, a lack of role clarity, and just stress from the inability to provide the quality of care that they were used to delivering, they were used to delivering. But what I'm trying to say here is um, that part of our dis discussion of decolonization can't solely focus on individual decision makers, those people who choose to um, volunteer, their structures that are involved. Um, when some of our volunteers return to the US is when we start to see some of the tensions that we are talking about here today. For example, a participant noted that um, I had to do a 21-day mandatory quarantine and observation period. I actually oddly found this to be the most traumatic part of the whole thing. So it's kind of interesting from a decolonization standpoint that 
the trauma faced in a country where 50% of patients were dying, where there are limited resources, where bodies were piling up on top of each other, that it was only jarring um, when you had to stay home for three weeks. So that was um, an interesting point to know. Um, but I'll conclude with this quote from one participant who said, I had this whole questioning of myself and my role in humanitarian response. You know, I kind of came to the fact that all of this is dirty and humanitarian response is, is going to have some of its dirtiness. Nothing is as altruistic, clean and fair as you think it is. Everything is complicated and not everybody's in it for the purpose of helping each other out, end quote. All of that is to say that it's one thing for me to think about decolonization in terms of Western countries go providing uninvited technical assistant and assistance and programs is another to reimagine decolonization with an outbreak like Ebola, where there's a fatality rate of close to 50%, where among healthcare workers, the fatality rate is close to 36%. Um, in this situation, trained physicians and nurses deployed, and they did so at a very critical time. And yes, the Ebola healthcare workers were Times Magazine's um, Persons of the Year, but in thinking about decolonization, I wonder if even in our response or our desire to act quickly um, and respond to mitigate outbreaks and spread, if our response is simply tied to ensuring that diseases that are associated with other countries do not make their way into the U.S. And I think that's something we have to continue to think about. Absolutely. And those were some really powerful quotes and perspectives that you shared. Um, so, you know, on a somewhat related topic to um, humanitarian um, responses, could you speak some about your recommendations for effective healthcare volunteerism? Um, yes. If to decolonize is to allow people, um, even with their limited resources, to play a role in the decisions that shape their lives, then I think it's important to ask and to learn from the perspectives of local healthcare workers before and after medical missions, where there might be a surge of people who come in and a surge of people who leave to find out what works and what does not. Um, this is important because we know that infectious disease outbreaks are increasing in, in frequency and severity and will necessitate equitable and just responses. The one question that my colleagues and I kept asking is, who is responsible for preparing healthcare volunteers? Who is responsible for making recommendations for effective healthcare volunteerism when anyone can go off and say that they are a health volunteer? And how do we ensure that countries that are most impacted are involved in these conversations? Um, speaking solely from our qualitative interviews, there was a lack of preparedness at all stages of deployment. When deployment is necessary, I think it's important to provide um, pre-deployment and on-site training. Physicians need to know how to wear protective equipment. Um, and that is for their personal safety and that of their um, patients. Uh, High-risk medical missions should be limited to well-trained personnel um, who are familiar with the setting that they are answering. Volunteering locally or nationally before going overseas is also vital. Uh, recognizing how 
colonization manifests in our own lives will allow some necessary reflections about our perceived role in global health responses. Uh, we can honor and value indigenous practices by working with trusted community leaders. Uh, we also have to be very careful about who tells the story and what perspectives are celebrated um, above others. The work of decolonization, I think, is an ongoing journey. But I think even in high-risk medical missions such as Ebola, we can start to we can start by recognizing the value of everyone's perspectives, especially local healthcare workers. Excellent. Thank you um, for those recommendations and that insight. Shilma, we haven't heard from you much recently. Could you, um, I know that some of your work explores the implications of public health surveillance. Could you explain why public health surveillance is important for the, for the improvement of population health? Yeah, uh, so just to give a little context, this is something that public health surveillance is something that I began to think a little more critically about um, uh, during a, a brief internship where I was working on a project based in, in Mali. Um, so just defining what public health surveillance is, uh, it's, it's been described as, quote unquote, the ongoing systematic collection, analysis, and interpretation of health-related data essential to planning, implementation, and evaluation of public health practice. So if you think of data sets like BRFSS and Haynes DHS data, so this is just a term that describes the data collection and analysis efforts that tell us about the health of populations and which ultimately help uh, guide and determine the need for different health services and interventions. Um, and of course, it's not something that's unique to the global health context. It happens everywhere. Uh, an important way, is, so I'm in the field of health communication, um, and a way that it connects to HealthCom is that it helps the development and decision-making around uh, the implementation and, and uh, dissemination of different health communication interventions. So specifically, speaking from the context of this project, uh, surveillance, surveillance efforts were established uh, to, sorry, the surveillance efforts that were established helped us um, uh, determine that there was a need for family planning interventions because almost 50% of the women below the age of 18 and in that country had, had given birth. And in general, uh, in Mali, uh, women tend to have an average of six children over the course of their lifetime. So essentially, the data from this surveillance effort helped, uh, uh, helped guide uh, the strategizing for a multi-pronged health communication intervention that targeted uh, a different, uh, a variety of health behaviors that were not just specific to health uh, family planning. Um, there was a malaria uh, prevention component, um, and there were there were other things that were uh, in that. But uh, for the specifically for family planning, the targeted behavior was uh, uh, condom use, and they did this. Uh, they attempted to do encourage condom use by seeking to change the social norms. Because it's not so much that people don't know that condoms are there. So in in, in the field of health comm and, and health behavior, it's it's one thing. Like structural barriers are always relevant. These are things you always need to take into consideration when trying to encourage people to adopt a behavior. But there are there are situations where even if a behavior is accessible, people aren't necessarily going to do it. Um, and the structural factors aren't always the biggest predictors of adopting a behavior. So in this particular context, what, what they realized was that 
one of the huge barriers from condom use was uh, uh, a social norm. So this is a nation that is mostly Muslim, it's conservative, um, and, and, and the population that they were looking at, condom use was not something that was talked about, or family planning in general was not something that, they were, that was talked about often. Um, and these uh, conservative views really informed people's uh, beha- uh, behaviors and decision-making around family planning. So these were uh, implementing this, knowing that this, there was a need for this intervention was something that we could only have been gleaned from data collection. So that's just one uh, example of how beneficial and necessary and important uh, public health surveillance is. That absolutely makes sense. Um, thank you. Do you think that you could share any concerns that we should have for public health surveillance in low-income countries and how they might be addressed? Right. Um, so one of the biggest concerns that comes up is the ability to triangulate who respondents are uh, through publicly available de-identified data. Um, because these, these surveys collect so much information that include tribal identification, geographic region, household size, et cetera. And even if you take, uh, researchers think they're taking steps to de-identify and make the, the data anonymous, it's, it's very difficult to, to do it in such a perfect way. Um, that it, it's impossible to, if, if someone really wanted to, it becomes impossible to figure out who, uh, these individuals are. Um, and, uh, they described this, uh, at, at the center I was working at. This was something that they were, they were grappling with and they described this as a mosaic effect. And this becomes so essentially different pieces of information being taken from, from de-identified data sets, um, and being put together to identify individuals. Um, and this is especially a concern when looking at community-level data, which was the case for this particular project I'm, I'm discussing. Um, and what heightened their concern, so this is, it wasn't as that they had just started collecting huge data sets with all sorts of potentially identifying um, uh, variables, but what, what made this a more salient concern for them was because of a recent policy that had been enacted um, by USAID called ASD uh, 579, and that was a USAID-funded project. And essentially, this policy shortened the timeline um, with which researchers collecting data on USAID-funded projects had to release the data to the public. So when these data sets are housed in different institutions, there is an element of, of, of confidence and like, okay, these people's information are going to be safe in, in this space, and, you know, we can take really systematic approaches to making sure that when we do release the data, there's nothing uh, that could be used to identify individuals if someone wanted to. But because of this quickened timeline and, and just the, the conflicting uh, priorities that people have in, in, in academic and other research institutions where you're working on various projects, and you now also have to worry about like releasing your data. But in order to do that, you want to make sure that um, you're not having, you're, it's completely stripped of anything that could possibly be, uh, uh, used to identify respondents. And of course, the goal of making these data sets public is to, you know, further science and have other people have access to this information so we can continue to, uh, come up with solutions to different problems. And of course, the motivations are, are pure. <laughs> but realistically, what ends up happening because, uh, 
so uh, these these institutions might not have the the time or the human resources to do to meet the timeline uh, to completely strip the data of any potentially um, identifiable uh, information. And of course, this becomes the ability to to use to to aggregate different pieces of data, identify people becomes a, a, a big concern in areas where there are different political or religious like. Uh, motivators of on or causes of unrest that make certain health behaviors inappropriate to partake in or discuss. Um, and of course, like if you're not thinking about these different cultural contexts and how uh, a publicly available data might have different um, consequences for different people based on the social, political, and cultural context that they live in, like uh, you're, I think I think that might be part of why um, this effort to um, to to release data more quickly was seen as overall a, a good thing. But when you're not really thinking critically of all these other background factors that could complicate it, that's when you run into issues. Um, so, for example, a recent study that was looking at this particular problem found that uh, using 210 data sets, uh, these researchers were able to re-identify 99.98 of individuals in the data sets using just 15 demographic variables. So it just goes to show that if someone really wanted to do it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible. And, you know, when we talk about the consequences of, of surveillance in the, U, in, in the U.S. context, to be specific, we talk about, oh, you know, these companies are tracking my searches and they're going to, like, advertise to me or, like, the government is watching and, you know, identifying people that are, that are, uh, uh, saying certain things on social media, activists are in danger because of surveillance. But how often are we extending these conversations to people in, in these lower to middle, uh, middle to low income countries um, that we're, we're doing uh, work with? So it's as though like, these are things that we think about in the Western world, but like, these are things that also matter um, in, 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 other, in other areas and that are driven and, and the reasons why they matter look different from ours. So I think it's important that, uh, that some sort of systematic solution be implemented to uh, ensure that when if if, if uh, institutions have to comply with this quickened timeline to release data, what are the there needs to be a checklist to ensure that everything that could possibly be used to identify people um, are are removed. And some another issue that was brought up um, in the in the where I was working that summer. Um, they talked about just the security. So these these uh, different um, institutions that are collecting data and and delivering interventions are like we have our own protocols for data security. But in all honesty, we don't know how much the government is putting into making sure that uh, uh, the data is secure. And like so, these are these are there are a lot of things that come up with this. So one of the solutions that I thought. Um, uh, like I previously mentioned, was just making sure that there is some sort of system to ensure that that every uh, data set that becomes publicly available that can have potentially sensitive information meets these requirements. Rather, what's in place right now is sort of like, uh, we trust that you're going to do this the right way and make sure it's properly de-identified. And that doesn't really instill confidence in a lot of uh, me and the people that I was working with. That doesn't instill confidence in, in researchers that really care about the consequences of surveillance. Um, so I think uh, if, 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 our, if these funding bodies are demanding that you make information publicly available, um, 
that you also have a system to ensure that not, no harm is can potentially be be brought um, to your respondents by uh, as a result of them participating in your data collection efforts. And and this also segues into uh, uh, a related concern that I honestly don't have a good answer with. It's an issue that I'm still grappling with. Um, is that of of consent? So as you're when we when we're going into these. Uh, countries and, and collecting data for whatever purposes, how how informed are people that the information that they're sharing is going to exist somewhere on the internet forever? Like these sensitive pieces of information that they're sharing are going to like be available on the internet or wherever, and and potentially they could be used to identify their village, their their ethnic group, their their even at the community level. So. I honestly don't have a, a good a suggestion for this, but this is something that I've been thinking about recently, and I think that we should consider because I, as much as I believe and I have confidence in, in different institutions that collect data, that there there is informed consent, but like how informed is it? Like because there's structural barriers that like limit how informed someone might be to like under like how how well does someone understand that you're taking a, a demographic survey and what the the implications of that are to their you know, to their community over time. So, of course, there are issues of like education and, and, and language barriers and, and such. Um, and there's only so much that you can communicate um, if someone doesn't really understand the consequences of like their data and, and research. So I, I think it's a complex, complex issue that um, I'm hoping that uh, researchers can continue to, to grapple with and actually like consider as they, uh, con uh, as public health surveillance efforts um, continue in the world. Excellent. Thank you um, for that for that really important insight. Pivoting a little bit from one really challenging issue to another, um, that of sanctions. Anz, could you describe the intersection of global health sanctions and decolonization? Sure. Um, I can briefly comment on it. Um, and I think so part of the reason I wanted to uplift this part is that I myself have background studying foreign policy and international migration. Uh, but it's always disjointed that in public health or global health teaching, we don't consider how international or our U.S. foreign policy impacts public health. You know, it's often very localized, often thinking about one single intervention, and that's the end of your uh, your sort of like conversation, and that's where your universal uh, universe revolves around. But in reality, global sanctions are one of those things. You know, like they're really example of colonial powers maintaining control over people in the most brutal ways. You know, like we sell these sanctions as that, oh, this is better than us going out and carpet bombing people. Uh, that's the argument for uh, sanctions, right? They're like, you know, in, in reality, what we're really doing is that I am going to choke you and your economy to a point where it's going to collapse and people will revolt eventually, right? And now in theory, there are supposed to be exemptions for basic necessities, humanitarian aid and medication and so on. But de facto, that's not really how it works, you know, and we it's it's a thing that like, you know, from Yugoslavia, 
when it was uh, in existence, to Sudan, to North Korea, to Iran, to Venezuela, and so on. There are a number of countries that we can see time and time again how international UN security sanctions as well as US sanctions have caused a lot of harm, you know? A couple of like really egregious examples really are like, you know, 40,000 Venezuelans killed, right? Like half a million Iraqi children killed because of our US sanctions, right? Like, you know, that is part of our global health work and something we don't even think about, you know? It's like Iran is a case example, North Korea is an example. And I often challenge people about that issue, partly because our main bone of contention with both of these countries is that, oh, how dare them trying to develop nuclear weapons, right? And in this entire world, as we know, on our entire time scale, there's literally have been one country that has ever used nuclear weapons. And that's the United States of America, right? And now we go around telling everyone else what to do, what not to do, and we're not approaching this issue in a very sensitive way. And so a lot of the people who work in counterterrorism efforts or a lot of this like international security sphere, they're not very self-reflexive. They're not, they're perpetuating precisely what we were talking about earlier, lack of perspectives. You know, who sits in this particular decision-making capacities? Who gets to call the shots? You know, it's interesting enough, like I was reading on, and one of the things that um, we may or may not have mentioned, this whole regime of think tanks, you know, it's like I, I live in Washington, D.C., and it's littered with these think tanks, you know, and you can have really outrageous views, uh, which would fall in sort of like, you know, really dehumanizing approach towards issues. And you would get hired by some think tank, you know, because like you're considered an expert on the issue. Like, for instance, like I was reading a couple of uh, things coming out of like really, you know, well-respected think tanks where the argument was that how the U.S. foreign policy should use their existing sanctions regime to extend public health sanctions against countries who are not responsive to COVID response the way Western countries want them to be. And I want you all to take a moment and acknowledge and think about the irony and absurdity of that argument, knowing just how crappy and failed response to COVID has been in the United States and the United Kingdom and a bunch of other Western countries, which for centuries we've been insisting as this developed healthcare systems, whatever that means, right? Uh, so thinking about that, where we continue to perpetuate that thing that as though we know what's best for them and now we're gonna and sanctions are one of those ways like you know they have like we don't think about that their impact on global health a couple of examples for instance like we know uh and this is not my work i don't want to misappropriate it i'm just synthesizing and uplifting someone else's work uh but there's there's been a lot of research on it that like you know when you sanctioned countries like, you know, diseases like typhus, measles, tuberculosis, all of that goes up, you know, uh, your hospital mortality goes up, you know, Iran is an example, they produce roughly 90% of their medication locally, uh, but not because they can't import. But the issue is that now they cannot even import raw materials to make those medications, right? Like, you know, and then like there's a whole issue of like medical equipment that they need to import from outside. And that's something because of the sanctions they, they're not able to import and people who need dialysis, for instance, right? Like an example, if we were to operationalize it, um, that how it reflects at the very local level, 
they're not able to get that stuff. You know, people, people who need cancer medication, they're not able to get those medication. You know, all of that is very global health related work. And all of it is sort of sanctions are a classic way how colonial powers continue to maintain that power dynamics that we've been talking about. And people who talk about this regime are not very sensitive to any of this stuff. And part of it is because that's not something that affects them and by any stretch of imagination. And often it's white men uh, making these decisions for the rest of the world and selling domestically as this boogeyman that they're trying to, uh, you know, uh, get rid of. Uh, and that's how we continue to perpetuate uh, colonialism within that global um, health sanctions regime. Thank you so much. Um, next, SNA, your research focuses on migration and immigrant health, as we noted before. How do you see that fitting into the global health conversation? I think that in general, um, migration and health are gaining increased attention um, in the global health framing and discussion because of the sheer number of people that are moving within and between countries and because countries are looking for ways to respond to that movement. Um, public health specifically um, and immigration policies have intersected throughout history, for example, um, in the US to construct particular groups of immigrants as a threat to the nation's health and well-being. Um, there's a there's always a level of Western panic from outbreaks that stem from other countries. Um, this is seen even in the images the media uses and in news segments in discussing particular diseases. Uh, the truth is that this panic is couched in racism. Um, I think a salient example is the anti-Chinese, anti-Asian racism that has been um, magnified with COVID-19. We also saw a similar um, bit of that with anti-African racism with the Ebola outbreak. Um, even the healthcare volunteers uh, talked about distance, um, friends keeping distant from them because they had traveled to Africa. But I think it's important to note how I and others tend to frame our understanding of migration and why people move. And it ties into a lot of what Anne was talking about. Um, the premise is that we are all a part of a global system that has become even more interconnected because of globalization, capitalism, and just technological advances. Um, in this global system, people move because of and to meet the demands of. Um, so they move, for example, because of sanctions. People move to respond to the needs of other countries and at the same time are forced to move because of what other countries are extracting or taking away from the migrants' own country. Um, so while migration and health are gaining attention in global health in the global health framing, there is still a tendency for certain countries to view themselves as separate from most other countries, even though they are part of the global, the same global system. And I think as Denise said earlier, all, all of the health issues that we're concerned about are all interconnected and we're indeed all really global citizens. Thank you. Um, and on that note, I would um, appreciate it, Denise, if you could speak about ways that global health issues like malaria and dengue affect us locally. Uh, absolutely. I would actually like to start off just by saying that what Ezene is and what she just talked about really kind of hits the nail on the head as an example. Um, whether or not, you know, immigrant communities are feeling 
safe and welcome in their own communities due to xenophobia and other kind of sentiments due to diseases, um, that does matter. And diseases um, like um, Ebola and COVID-19, those have a stigma, whether or not we recognize it or not, that, and and people that feel that negative, um, that negative stigma and xenophobia, that impacts people's well-being. So I think that that is um, something that people should kind of be aware of and mindful of, um, just because it's an unseen impact of these sorts of diseases and how that impacts your community. So thanks for talking about that, um, Esme. Um, and then I just wanted to say this, the obvious, you know, in terms of tropical diseases like malaria and dengue fever, um, people like to think that that's not really our problem here in the United States. And that's absolutely false. Um, the obvious reason is because of, you know, travel, you know, people travel to other places and that's kind of where they're um, at the most risk. Um, and in fact, most of the, you know, malaria, Zika, dengue cases in the United States are contracted through international travel. But I really do want to highlight that Infected travelers do return home and then they can infect local mosquitoes that then instigate local transmission in their community. And local outbreaks like this have happened in recent years in Texas, Hawaii, and Florida, and other places where the mosquito population is is fairly high. Um, And there's actually an ongoing outbreak right now happening in Florida, in in Monroe County. Um, And it's all locally acquired dengue fever, where over 50 people right now have been infected but have not traveled internationally. And while this sort of thing is usually pretty unusual, we're we're seeing it more often and we're going to, because the reality is that climate change is going to make this even more common and more and more areas are going to become hospitable to mosquito vectors and, and the resulting pathogens that they carry. So I think that we should be mindful that what we kind of do and put out in the world is going to have global consequences and it's really going to change the landscape of tropical infectious diseases and, and where certain diseases do or do not take place. So I think people should be, be aware of that and, and, and not think of these as, as someone else's problem. Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I just just want to sort of like, you know, uh, go back a few seconds. I just want to quickly point out the like, you know, the idea of this whose stories get told and who tells those stories is really, really important. Like, for instance, refugees and migrants are an issue that like often people talk about that, like, you know, this like, uh, as Neil was talking about this panic about refugees, right? And the reality there really is like it's a moral crisis. It's uh, it's not a moral crisis. It's a it's 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 a management related issue, right? Because like most of the refugee hosting countries are not in the Western world. Like it's Jordan, it's Turkey, it's Pakistan, it's Lebanon, it's Iran, it's Ethiopia, it's Kenya, it's Uganda, it's Chad, it's DRC, and so on, right? And but when we talk about refugees, it's often as the Western world is trying to embrace all these refugees and millions and millions of are flooding in. So I just want to highlight that part when we talk about migration and refugee crisis, which we need to contextualize that thing instead of like, you know, Western media perpetuating a certain narrative and trying to push it, uh, you know, basically down our throat in a certain way. And so we need to be pushing back on that thing that like, you know, it's not just people sitting in this like positions of power in global health. All of these institutions, like media, politics, onwards, play a role in perpetuating that colonial legacy when it comes to uh, global health. Thank you, um, um, and Denise. So we um, have really had a really rich discussion up to this point about um, just the ways in which the global north really dominates our um, our public health um, priorities and. Um, in, in the way that we perpetuate a colonized global health practice, right? 
So I just wanted to spend our last minutes here just talking about some ways that we can actively work to decolonize global health um, in academia and beyond. I think uh, it's a very simple, uh, well, it might not be that simple, but like just calling these, bringing these issues to the forefront. Like when it, in my context of, of data surveillance, you're working on a team that's mostly white, um, you know, probably uh, mostly male, depending on, on the institutions that are like in charge of leading these projects. It's important that, uh, we bring up these issues that, um, they're not, they might not be thinking of. Like, hey, like, you know, if there, there are consequences that you might not be thinking of, um, when it comes to collecting data on people's sexual related activity in a particular country that, uh, is really conservative and people are not engaging in certain behaviors because it's looked down on and it's just not what is the norm in those areas. So it's, it's easy to think of these, uh, these data collection efforts as harmless and, you know, we're trying to help and, and improve population health. But if you're not thinking critically of what the, the, the downsides or the ramifications, the different consequences that might come about from, from doing this work, like your, your intention no longer matters. So I think just it can be as simple as starting these conversations because unfortunately we end up in spaces where we're working with people that aren't thinking of these issues. They, they have their, their goals and like they have, uh, the, the objectives for the project and all they know, all what their uh, most, their biggest concern is, is achieving these goals. But there are all these uh, side uh, uh, side uh, effects that could come about by doing some of the work that we do. So just starting the conversation and and using our voices to bring up these concerns. And of course, like there aren't enough of us in this in these spaces, and it's unfortunate that it does have to fall on us to to, to be these critical voices, and it can. Um, be a challenge and can have consequences for your career if you're the person that's always flagging what uh, your institution is doing wrong or is failing to do. But um, unfortunately, this is it, it ends up that these are the roles that we kind we have to take in our in in our um, positions in these spaces. I can also chime in here. Um, I can I can think when I'm thinking about um, things that we can do um, in terms of um, academia. Um, so obviously in academia, academic publishing is a, is a major thing. It helps really kind of dictate and drive your career. And, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of discrepancies in, in terms of, um, of academic publishing in that, um, you know, a lot of papers that are written about, you know, places in Africa and Asia um, don't sometimes don't even include an author that is from one of those places. And if they do include the author, it, it's maybe the random middle author, but they're not getting a first authorship. They're not getting a last authorship. And those are the ones that really matter for your career. So an example of kind of um, how you can kind of start planting the seeds kind of early is that, um, you know, working with my advisor works a lot in Latin America. And so we have collaborators there as well. And when we talk together about publications, um, oftentimes, sometimes we'll do co-first author and co-last um, co author. Or sometimes, you know, if it's led by a, a student at UNC, then then the, the final author will be um, someone who's in a different country. So we really try and make sure that we're, as we're putting out papers and, and planning papers, that there are true collaborations happening so that um, there's kind of equal opportunity for everyone to kind of um, 
to kind of kind of make their mark in that way because unfortunately, you know, publisher parish is a real thing in academia. And is and so we have to make sure people have the opportunities to kind of get themselves published. I'm um, also thinking about the editorial boards of these magazines. You know, if you're on a, if you're an editor of a magazine, it kind of really symbolizes your influence as a leader in your field. Yet most of the editorial boards of these global health magazines are predominantly men from North America and Europe. So I think if we want to talk about who's controlling the narrative, you don't have, you know, people of color and people from other countries on the board of your global health magazine, you're really telling a singular story there. So I think making sure that we're diversifying um, um, these kind of, you know, power positions, I think would go a long way, you know, in terms of, of decolonizing global health. Yeah, I mean, uh, just building off of that, like, um, I was reading up on it, like, not too long ago that um, I think it was a pretty catchy title, Inequalities in Global Health Research Related. So they looked at, like, you know, about half a century worth of data on publications. And most of the global health inequalities related research, like, I think, like, 70% was between just the United States, UK, Canada, and Australia. Just these countries were the ones uh, that, you know, produced that research, or one author was affiliated with it, right? And that... Uh, that is sort of like your uh, evidence of what Denise was saying earlier than in terms of like authorship. And then the second thing is like, we're still stuck with that model of, you know, building our careers in Western world on the backs of these people out there in the world, which we have historically, you know, again, enslaved, looted and so on. And not really taking those perspectives into account, you know, like often we are focused on, doing a data analysis and publishing it instead of uplifting other methodologies from community engagement to active participation from the communities. And then more importantly, thinking about how is it going to get translated into practice in a more equitable way. Um, and I guess like one other thing I want to quickly point out, <clears throat> I mean, like that critique, like we've been talking about of like Western critique of it, I think we should also be constantly self-reflexive as we engage in this work while, you know, each and every one of us uh, come from um, a little bit darker skin tone um, since uh, I don't like to use the race category um, invented by white people. So it's, but as we engage in this work, especially in the global South, we should be thinking about how we stay self-reflexive and we don't become neo-colonial ourselves as we are approaching this work. So we're constantly thinking and reflecting on our work and making sure that it's rooted in the values that we aspire to uh, the field to move towards. Well, that was an absolutely wonderful way to, to end this at um, some really some really good suggestions and really powerful um, things to keep in mind as we uh, move forward in our work. And, um, and thank you all for giving such wonderful food for thought. Absolutely. Thank you all. And I think this panel aligns so well with the theme of the overall annual meeting, which is policies place and profits. Each one of you touched on these broad issues and really brought some things to, to bear that I certainly don't think about often. I hope that our, our um, listeners will be thinking about as well. So thanks again to Ans, Adia, Kioma, Denise, and Ezene for joining us today. Um, we'll tune in for more conversation of how experts from different methodological and disciplinary traditions work with one another across boundaries to understand and improve population health in upcoming episodes of Sick Individuals and Sick Populations. And be sure to check out the other work of scholars participating in IPHSs 
2020 annual meeting, visit our website at iaphs.org for recordings of our conference. Thanks again.